the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. For the moment, this is a literal love story of a literal husband and wife who are coming together, honoring God in their courtship, honoring God in their marriage, and they're enjoying each other sexually. But the early church fathers and the reformers and the Puritans, they didn't know what to do with this stuff. And let me just give you a few examples of their views of sex, even in marriage. For example, the Catholic Pope Innocent III of the 13th century, he said, quote, everyone knows that intercourse, even between married persons, is never performed without the itch of the flesh, the heat of passion, and the stench of lust. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Song of Solomon. The church has had difficulty throughout history with how to teach about the Song of Solomon, mainly because of the poetically veiled references to sexual activity contained therein. Even though the story is about a husband and wife and celebrates their fidelity, this still has been a topic not spoken about often. Pastor Gary will be teaching about the biblical principles Solomon and his unnamed lover proclaimed to each other, and his unnamed lover proclaimed to one another, These, of course, have application for us in this day, and it would be beneficial for us to pay attention to them. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, please turn to the Book of Solomon, chapters 3 through 5, and let's join Pastor Gary for part 2 of today's message, Marital Love. So he's talking about how she looks as innocent and attractive as young deer. He says in verse 6, Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. All beautiful you are, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Very rich and very personal and very meaningful. He says in verse 8, Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Now, this is the first time the word bride is used in his reference to her and of her. And he will use that word four more times in this chapter. Because now they are married together. So he's referring to her as my bride. And he says, come with me from Lebanon. This is, again, poetic language. He's not saying that they've come from Lebanon. This is figurative for the great distance that they have kept themselves sexually apart. But now I want you to come with me from that great distance. And I want you and me to come together here. And jump to verse 12. 
In verse 12, he says, you are a garden locked up. My sister, my bride, you are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. So this is that reference to how she's kept herself pure. She's been a virgin. You are a garden locked up. Don't stumble on my sister, my bride. That's just an affectionate term that expresses permanence in the relationship. Okay, that's not anything weird. It's just, again, more cultural than anything else. Jump to verse 15. He says, you are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. Now, that's interesting because if you contrast that or compare it with verse 12, where in verse 12, he said, you're a spring enclosed. You're a sealed fountain, but now in verse 15, he says, you're a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. So again, this is poetic language to describe the fact that she is now sexually ready to receive him. She's physically responded to him. Again, no particular brilliant news to anybody, but men are generally aroused physically by seeing things. Women typically are generally more aroused emotionally. And so she's come to this place of being physically ready because he spent some time addressing her spiritually and emotionally, telling her how beautiful she is, just building her up, affirming her, helping her to feel safe and loved. And so now she's ready to receive him. And that actually is a description there of her physical readiness. Now she invites him to have sex with her in verse 16. She says to him, awake, north wind, And come, south wind, blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread abroad. Let my lover come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. So they consummate the marriage here. He's been very tender and patient and loving towards her. She now is responding sexually. They now consummate the marriage. The early church fathers didn't know what to do with a lot of this language here. The early church fathers, the Puritans, the reformers, by and large, read and taught and interpreted the Song of Solomon as an allegorical book that displayed the love of Christ for the church or the love of God for Israel. The early church fathers didn't know how, what do we do with it? This is kind of, this is kind of explicit material. I mean, when you read what we just read, that's pretty hard to look at that and think, well, that's all about Jesus' love for me. That's what that is. I don't think so. I mean, there is a greater symbolism in the whole book about the love of God for us. But for the moment, this is a literal love story of a literal husband and wife who are coming together, honoring God in their courtship, honoring God in their marriage, and they're enjoying each other sexually. But the early church fathers and the reformers and the Puritans, they didn't know what to do with this stuff. And let me just give you a few examples of their views of sex, even in marriage. For example, the Catholic Pope Innocent III of the 13th century, he said, quote, everyone knows that intercourse, even between married persons, is never performed without the itch of the flesh, the heat of passion, and the stench of lust, end quote. Kind of a low view of sex, even in marriage. Martin Luther said about sex in marriage, quote, had God consulted me in the matter, I should have advised him to continue the generation of the species by fashioning them of clay, end quote. So he's like, you know, God, you had a good thing going the way you made Adam from the dirt. Why don't you just do it that way? And so he had a low view of sex and marriage, too. He said, you know, I I just wish God would do it by fashioning people from the dirt. That's his his view. St. Jerome of the 5th century A.D., he said, quote, Do you imagine that we approve of any sexual intercourse except for the procreation of children? He who is too ardent a lover of his own wife is an adulterer, end quote. 
Okay, that's some of the stuff that's out there in church history. Clement of Alexandria, 3rd century A.D., he said, quote, If a man marries in order to have children, he ought not to have a sexual desire for his wife. He ought to produce children by a reverent, disciplined act of the will, end quote. Do you imagine it? I don't know what he's saying there. What he's actually saying is you should be disciplined enough in your sexual desires to only have sex with your wife if it is for the sole purpose of having children. So that's the view, a very low view. And so again, they would interpret Song of Solomon with this idea that it must just be a reference of God's love for Israel, Christ's love for the church, because we don't know what to do with a lot of this explicit language, though it is poetically veiled. And what we need to understand is that, again, sex is a gift from God to be enjoyed between a husband and a wife in a monogamous, heterosexual marriage. And he has given it in this way for us, not just for procreation, for the production of children, but also for pleasure. And also, obviously, for oneness and for love and for coming together in a very private and intimate and exclusive way, devoted to each other. And I often get asked this question from time to time, what is allowed in the bedroom? Between Christians, two consenting adults, husband and wife, heterosexual marriage, under the headship of Christ, what is allowed in the bedroom. So there's a verse in Hebrews 13 verse 4 that simply says this, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. So taking that verse along with just the overall view of scripture, I would simply say this, what is permissible in the bedroom between a husband and a wife? Anything that brings you closer to God closer to each other and has mutual consent. If one is uncomfortable with this particular thing, then I think it should be no for the benefit of deferring to the one that you love. But does it bring me closer to God? Would it be God honoring or, or would it be dishonoring? It might be as a better way to interpret it because that could be, well, how could this possibly necessarily honor God? But at least think of it in terms of would this possibly dishonor God? Would this be displeasing to God? And so that has to be in the mix, in the equation. And then, so does it bring me closer to God? Does it bring me closer to my spouse? And is it something that is mutually agreed upon? And if not mutually agreed upon, then it should be avoided. That said, the bedroom is never to be a place where one spouse tries to either control, manipulate, or punish another. The Bible speaks against that. And that, unfortunately, is sometimes a weapon that people will use. And in depriving someone of sexual intimacy as a means of controlling, manipulating, or punishing. And 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul speaks about this. He says that a husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. And that a wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. That they need to have a mutual respect and appreciation for each other. But once you get married, none of us is entitled to my own body for myself. It is not exclusively my own. It now belongs to my spouse as well. And so we have to be careful of this because also further in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul even warns, he says, don't deprive each other of sexual intimacy except by mutual consent and for prayer. But then he says, but come again quickly, together again quickly so that Satan does not tempt you. And so we have to be aware that we're all created as sexual beings. And God created, again, sex as a gift to be enjoyed in a marriage. And that sexual temptation is very real. 
and can sometimes be very powerful. So there's that warning there in 1 Corinthians 7 that if, if you're to be separate, make sure that it's by mutual consent. There are some reasons why couples need to just abstain sexually because maybe there's something they need to devote themselves to prayerfully. So pray together, maybe fast together, and devote yourselves to something of a spiritual significance. But don't take too long to come back together because temptation is real and temptation can lead to sin. Temptation itself is not sin, but it can lead to sin. So there's a strong warning there in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that we need to be aware of. The temptation is real. And it is never an excuse for cheating, for lusting, or for viewing pornography. But the understanding needs to be that if we're intentional about making sure we please our spouse, it will go a long way to then helping each other avoid temptation that could lead to sin. No excuses for the sin, but we need at least be responsible for each other in a marriage to make sure that we're not doing anything that could contribute to our spouse's temptation towards sin. And I think it's good for a husband and wife to periodically ask each other, how are you doing in this area? And are you okay? And should we come together? And then when you say that, just make sure the garden's open for business. Okay, that's all I'm saying about that. If you're going to say that, make sure. Okay, wait, I can't joke. Let's get back to the story here. (laughs) Now, let me just say this in passing too. I don't have any illusions that everybody who comes together under the lordship of Christ, husband and wife, gets married and has a perfect sex life and there are never any problems or struggles or difficulties. That's just unrealistic. And so I want to say that I'm not insensitive to that, that there are some factors in relationships, sometimes in the relationship, sometimes prior to the relationship, whereby there is physical or emotional difficulty in this area. And so that may require, obviously, some extra grace, some extra patience, and perhaps even counseling. Nobody should feel ashamed about that. There are real struggles that all of us have in different ways, on different levels in the course of life in general. And so I'm not insensitive to that, nor do I think that in just addressing this topic in general, that I'm going to be addressing all the various aspects of sexuality in a marriage. That's not realistic either. So this is just kind of an overview of the love relationship between Solomon and his unnamed wife here. And it is an important reminder to us about the sacredness of sex and the gift of sex that God has given between husband and wife in a heterosexual monogamous marriage. So I'm not insensitive to that. And so if you're here with some of those struggles, and by the way, I think that no doubt Because I announced the topic, there are probably some people who chose not even to come to church today because it's that painful for them. And I respect that. Obviously, I can't avoid it. We're going straight through the Bible. There's a lot of things that we're going to talk about that are unavoidable topics that are sometimes uncomfortable. But with compassion and sensitivity, I say that if you have struggles or difficulties in your marriage in this area, don't feel ashamed about it. It happens. Maybe some counseling can help and certainly some patience among each other. But at least we can all agree on this, I hope, that God has given sexual intimacy as a gift to be enjoyed between a husband and a wife in a monogamous heterosexual marriage. 
And so we need to receive it as such. And for any of you who maybe came out of strict legalistic backgrounds and maybe some of the carryover of the early church fathers and you thought sex is dirty or sex is only for procreation or Adam and Eve only had sex after they left the garden, you know, so it must have been a sin. But, you know, there's some nonsense out there that maybe has contributed to a wrong view. And I just want to encourage you maybe kind of shed some of that and just kind of embrace the way that God designed it in its purity and in the gift that it is that God has given to us. Now, good news is that this book is not all about sex, because as part of marital love, we're going to touch on this topic. What time is this service in? Man, I got I to breeze through this. <laughs> Aggravation and reconciliation, friends. It's not all about sparks and romance and, and flowers and gifts and It's also about aggravation and then reconciling from the aggravation. You will, from time to time, aggravate your spouse. You will irritate him or her. You don't do it intentionally. They will do the same to you, okay? Maybe once in like 20 years it'll happen, but it'll happen. (laughs) And I love this story because they also, they get into a fight. We see it in chapter 5. Look at chapter 5, verse 2. He says, I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen. This is her speaking in chapter 5, verse 2. I slept and my heart was awake. Listen, my lover is knocking. And then he says, open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. She says, I've taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I've washed my feet. Must I soil them again? My lover thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. I arose to open for my lover. And my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh on the handles of the lock. I opened for my lover, but my lover had left. He was gone. My heart sank at his departure. I looked for him, but did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer. So here's what's happening in this scene. Husband has been working long hours. Solomon comes home late at night. His head is drenched with the dew of the evening, and he has been out all day long, comes home late at night. She doesn't wait up for him. She's tired of him coming home so late. She's tired herself. She takes a bath, and she crawls in bed. No sooner has she gotten into the bed when he knocks on the door, because she's thrown the deadbolt. She's like, I'll show him. He's coming home late. I'm going to just go to bed, and I'm going to go in. And so he comes home, and and he's knocking. He's like, honey, dear one, darling, darling, flawless one. Don't you love that he calls her that? Flawless one. Hey. He says, could you let me in, sweetheart? Somebody's accidentally locked the deadbolt. Yeah. (laughs) Now, it says that he reaches in, probably like some kind of window or the thatch of the door, and he's trying to unlock the door himself. And then she's like, oh, okay, I should just, this is ridiculous. And so she gets up, and she opens the door. Well, he's gone now at this point. He's like, I'm leaving. You know, so he's doing that, and then and she's responding in this way. Now, look, what's happening here is, you know how a lot of arguments, they often come about because of legitimate needs that each person has that go unmet. For him, he's thinking, I've worked a long, hard day, and I'm tired, and I'm coming home at night, and, and doesn't she understand that I work long, hard days for our family? And, and then she throws the deadbolt, I don't feel respected. And she's thinking at the same time, you know, he's working all the time and he's gone all day long. He didn't even call me like they had cell phones back in the day, but he didn't even call me. And so, and, and I'm worried about him and I'm just tired. And if I'm going to go to bed, I feel like I'm last on his list. He works so hard. I don't feel loved. Now, both are legitimate issues, but a lot of times arguments happen and the aggravation happens because legitimate needs go unmet and we need to have a lot of grace and forgiveness in marriage. And she begins to realize, okay, I need to show him grace. And she gets up. She opens the door, but he's already gone. 
In the chapter further, she gets her girlfriends together. She says, we've got to go find my husband. I, I don't know where he's gone. And I don't know where he is. Uh, they end up finding him, and then what, he, what does he do? He doesn't say, well, you know, you lock the dead ball. You know, he doesn't bark at her. You know, the first thing he does, he starts telling her how beautiful she is. And he goes through this long list of all her wonderful qualities. So we need to understand part of marital love involves a little aggravation, a little argument every once in a while, and then reconciliation. Fight fair, reconcile rapidly. Fight fair, like don't call each other's names, don't use the D word divorce, don't start shouting and belligerent and be cruel or unkind, and reconcile rapidly. Don't let it go on for days and days and days and days. Too many couples do that, it damages the marriage. I heard about this couple where they weren't talking to each other, got into this fight, they weren't talking to each other. And so the husband scribbles on a piece of note paper because the alarm clock was on her side of the bed. So he says, I have an early flight. He writes out, wake me up at 5 a.m. Gives her the note. They go to bed that night. Next morning, he wakes up just naturally, 7 a.m. No alarm clock, no nothing. He bolts out of bed, and and then he starts talking to her. He says, I've just now missed my flight. I told you to wake me up at 5 a.m. And she just goes... There's a little note on his end table, and he opens it up and says, it's 5 a.m., get up. (laughs) Don't do that. Don't do that. The last thing is affirmation and dedication. In chapter 8, you see them affirming their love for each other, and they remind each other the dedication that they have in their marriage until they die. In chapter 8, look at verses 5, 6, and 7. In chapter 8, the friends are speaking here in verse 5. They say, who is coming up from the desert, leaning on her lover? Her friends are noticing. They're coming home from the honeymoon. And so the girlfriends are like, who's this leaning on her lover? So there's this very endearing, loving scene here of them coming back. Maybe they're in a chariot. Maybe they're walking. She's just kind of leaning on his arm here. Very beautiful expression of their love for each other. And then the rest of verse 5. Under the apple tree I roused you. There your mother conceived you. There she who was in labor gave you birth. In verse 6, she's speaking here, Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot wash it away. If one were to give all the wealth of his house for love, it would be utterly scorned. So in other words, the friends see them coming from afar. They're returning from their honeymoon. And in the course of chapter 8, they just start affirming their love for one another. And they promise to be dedicated to each other for life. You see these phrases here where she says, set me like a seal over your heart. Well, a seal was a sign that you belonged to someone. They would take the imprint sometimes of a ring or something that was your identifying mark. And they would press it into soft wax on a document that would signify this belonged to you. She's saying, I want that constant sense of security that I belong to you. Put me like a seal on your heart. And then they use these other phrases here, for love is as strong as death. It burns like a blazing fire and many waters cannot quench love. So all those phrases there in verses six and seven. In other words, they're saying our love cannot be easily extinguished. They're affirming their love for each other. They're saying this, and they're expressing their dedication. Our love cannot be easily extinguished. Our love will continue to burn brightly for each other, and only the strength of death will separate us. Now, everybody thinks that at first when they get married. Nobody stands at an altar and thinks to themselves that they could possibly get divorced or have troubles. But marriages can have troubles, and people do get divorced. 
I love here their affirmation and dedication, if for no other reason to remind us, no matter how long you've been married, you need to continue to affirm your love to your spouse and to remind each other that you're in this for life. But again, I'm mindful of the fact that it doesn't always work out that way. Even in the Commonwealth of Virginia, someone can pursue a divorce and you can't even stop it. But shouldn't we at least be willing to say, as far as it depends on me in a marriage, I'm going to affirm my spouse regularly and I'm going to remind myself and her that I'm in this for life, that we should be so dedicated to one another. Song of Solomon is quite unique among the other books of the Bible. It's a vivacious poem exploring God's intentions for the relationship between a husband and wife, both before and during their marriage. Song of Solomon is very frank in its descriptions, yet reveals a union that's beautiful, emotional, and passionate. This book also tells us that God desires a deeply connected union with His bride, the church. He loves us more purely and perfectly than any relationship we'd ever find on earth. God's love for you caused Him to send His Son to earth to take away your sin, dying on the cross in your place. All you need to do is accept the grace He offers and begin a new life of love and devotion to God. Are you ready to take that step or do you have any questions? We'd be happy to talk with you. Give us a call at 703-771-1500. Pastor Gary has also created a short video explaining what salvation is and why every person needs it. Visit cornerstoneconnection.cc and click on How to Get to Heaven under the Grow tab to find it. We're so glad you tuned in today. Join us next time for more from this verse-by-verse study of the Song of Solomon right here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know You're not alone Real love is calling Listen, truth opens up your eyes Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.